Well, if you open your Bibles to 1 Peter, we are a few minutes late. We want to dive in when we need the Lord's help. Um, rush morning coming from different places, and yet we have the opportunity to allow this book to wash over us again. Uh, and it is a sweet passage that we, we will be in yet again. Chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verses 3. We're going to cover that in two weeks, so we're going to take our time here. So let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes, and ask the Lord's help. Father, we are grateful for the the cool air, the breeze of the morning. We're grateful for a new day. We're so grateful as well that Your Word tells us that Your mercies are new this morning. Uh, We get to revel in that as we gather as the people of God, bought by the precious blood of Christ. And we thank You so much for the ways in which the book of Hebrews puts this front and center that you are superior to all things, Lord. We pray that our allegiance, devotion, and worship would be solely fixed on you and no other earthly thing, possession, or person. Uh, We've got a lot going on in the world around us, and we thank you that we can now rest in your word, which is enduring and living. We pray that it would be rich and prove to be the sweet blessing that it so um, innately is. We pray that, that it would prove to be so as we study it now. Give us insight as well as, Lord, wisdom of how to apply for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just uh, by way of reminder, it's always a good exercise to replug into just the book on the whole before you dive into a small section. So the main theme of the book, right, the whole five chapters, chapter five, right at the end, God leads Peter to articulate what the purpose of the book is. This is the true grace of God, Stand firm in it. Now, anyone remember the context of those in Asia Minor for First Peter? What's going on in their lives of which this stand firm exhortation uh, is so powerful and relevant? I see some lips moving. What are they walking through? Persecution, right? Not only in the immediate and present, but also it's going to ratchet up over the next year, two years under wild, crazy Emperor Nero, who will obviously heat up that persecution a hundredfold. And so this book is to fortify them, strengthen them, not only right there in the present, but also equip them for what's to come. So he says, this is the true grace of God. Don't be disheartened. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Stand firm in it. So the message is clear. Hope filled standing, it goes on to communicate something else, produces something, Christ exalting walking in the midst of suffering. That's the theme. Right? You look at chapter 4, verse 12, listen, the rest of the world is going to watch you suffer. And they're going to observe that you are entrusting your soul to what kind of creator? A faithful creator in doing what is good. And that good entails being a model citizen, a gentle wife, a loving husband, etc. Right? So hope-filled standing is not idle or passive. It produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. Now we sharpen the magnifying glass for, for a moment. Uh, thus far, as we've made our way in chapter 1, Brandon, thank you for teaching the last two weeks, Peter's been focusing on the future, right? Uh, that living hope which the gospel of Jesus Christ provides... But in chapter 1, verse 22, he, the significance really begins to change in emphasis. He moves from focusing on the future, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and 
how that future is possible, how you get there, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, to now the present and how you are to live. And these two sections, or the flow of thought in this passage, are observed in the following ways. This is what you will have. You're going to obtain an inheritance, a glorious inheritance. You're going to realize it in full. Chapter 1, 3, and verse 21. But also here, this is what you are to currently have. And that's chapter 1, verse 22, to chapter 2, verse 10. You are to have a love for God's people, a love for God's Word, and a love for God Himself. This is what you are to have in the present. These are the marks of believers with a vibrant relationship with the living God. Love for God's people, Word, and God Himself. If you're taking notes, and does everyone have an outline this morning? Did you get one? Okay, it came with great cost. Okay, hold it with two hands. Uh, Main idea, Christians have been given a glorious new life through God's living and enduring Word, which should then produce loving relationships within God's people. That's a mouthful. We're just going to cover the first part of that statement. Christians have been given new life through the living and enduring Word of God, which should then produce loving relationships within God's people. Let's read chapter 1, verse 22. And again, we'll read all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3. Peter writes, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. This is the Word which was preached to you. Chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And have they not tasted of God's kindness? Let's begin to unpack this. Okay, One of the joys of studying God's Word is you begin to see things lay out on the table and pieces begin to fall in place. And that's the case here in chapter 1, 22 and following. Um, it's not a 2D uh, map, it's a, it's a 3D. It's got depth and color and texture, and you begin to see that, and from it, you see these peaks of which God begins to speak to us. And that's the case here. This is what in, in the Bible is known as a chiasm. Okay, You have this bookshelf that's ascending, and at the ends of the bookshelf is how do you start the Christian life, and at the end, how do you continue the Christian life? In between, there are these two commands taking on different forms, but the essence of both is to love one another. Okay, Right at the center of this chandelier with all of its intricate pieces, right in the middle of it is the reason for all of this is that you've been born again. Everything hangs off the center of this structure. You have been born again through the Word of God. This leads us to the first point of the morning. And this is really all that we will cover, okay? Christians have been given new life through God's living and enduring Word. Here's point number one. New life is the result of God's Word 
implanted in you. Okay? Look at verse 22 and 23 again. And we're going to observe a few things and we're going to get to some application or discussion. So I want you to hang on, keep both eyes open, dial in, and we're going to work through this, dig our hands in the soil together. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Friends, one of the things that this passage does so clearly is contrast our inability to live in love with that of God's ability to do both profoundly. Okay? And in so doing, the logic of love itself, love one another with but sincere love of the brethren from the heart, it rests in this. If God is life, and He is, and if God is love, and He is, if God sends His Word into your heart and gives you new life, now tasting of God's kindness, you are then now enabled to manifest the fruit of His character in your own life. That's the rationale. This God of life and love, He imparts life to you. Now you are enabled to manifest the fruit of His character in your own life. You're able to do the things that you see articulated in chapter 1, 22 and following. We receive this capacity, wonderful capacity, to demonstrate what we otherwise weren't previously able to manifest in the way that God does, a supernatural love. Part of this is repeatedly made clear throughout Scripture, is it not? That the lifeless unbeliever doesn't have the ability to demonstrate this kind of love. Not this kind of love. In fact, in John 13, 35, one of the ways that the world's going to know that you are His, right, is by your, what? Love for one another. So let's journey through this passage. How does this enabling take place? Let's get a running start up to verse 22 for a moment. Remind, be reminded of even some of the things that Brandon covered the last two weeks. Thus far, Peter has told his readers that God has redeemed them with what? The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Chapter 1, verse 19. That he articulated that Jesus was chosen beforehand, before the creation of the world, for this given task. Verse 20, verse 21, through him they believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And now Peter tells those within the church, since you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Now stop there for just a moment. This phrase, obeying the truth, is important because Peter's providing a definition of saving faith, is he not? Notice that the apostle does not say, that you obey a command. He says that we obey the truth. And for Peter, the, the truth was not some abstract idea, some general idea of openness. It was a definitive body of truth. Throughout the New Testament, the truth, in this case, is synonymous with the gospel itself. Okay? Let's look at a few for a moment. For example, throughout the book of you have Acts 15.9, God cleanses our hearts by faith. In the book of Galatians, which is all about the gospel, justification by faith alone. 
grace alone. The truth is synonymous with the gospel there. You were running well, Paul says, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. Ephesians 1.13, Paul identifies the word of truth with the gospel. You were in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. You listened to the message of truth. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians 1.5, one more of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Here it is, the gospel which has come to you. So when we look at 1 Peter 1.22 and the apostle says you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, he means that we, we've been purified when we what? When we believe and repent in the gospel which is the word of truth. Again, this phrase, obeying the truth, is important because Peter's providing a definition of saving faith, genuine faith. Elsewhere in the New Testament, to obey the truth is to believe and to repent. You have the bookends of the book of Romans, this wonderful, glorious book, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26. The obedience of faith is the phrase there. Chapter 10, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet who bring what? Good news. Right after that, he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They've not all obeyed. They've been all heeded, believed, and repented. Later on in 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter will warn that of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Why this warning? It's because 1 Peter 4, which we'll get to in time, conveys the same thing that 2 Thessalonians 1.8 conveys, and that, that is that God is going to dispense judgment on those who refuse to obey the gospel. He's going to dispense judgment and wrath, rightfully, justly so. And so in all of this, Peter's reiterating the truth he provided in chapter 1, verse 2 where he affirmed that they were saved according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Go back into the chapter and see that. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. This is very powerful when you look at the totality of chapter 1 already that we've covered, right? We've seen several things. So for Peter to obey the truth, to believe the Gospel... It's to believe that which has already been declared, right? Chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, that Jesus is the anointed Savior. He suffered, shed His innocent blood, died on a cross and rose and promised to restore all things. You believe this. And in so doing, you are obeying the word of truth. You obey the truth when you believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins and that God raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. Chapter 1, verse 21. You obey the gospel when your faith and hope rest in Jesus Christ, who chapter 2 later will say, bore our sins in His body on the tree so that you might die to sin and live for righteousness. This is what it is to believe and repent, to obey the word of truth. You heed the gospel and respond to His. Now the 
I want to be clear because we're going to, we're going to say a few more things about this theological principle, this scriptural truth. And we're going to spend some time, but I want to say why are we spending so much time? It's one, it's because we can. <laughs> because we're not in any hurry. But secondly, because this is a really big deal. <laughs> this is fundamental to you and I, our understanding of salvation itself. And because of this, we're going to find that it intersects everywhere with our life and ministry together. Our aim is to be gospel people, right? Who live grateful lives, urgent lives that faithful that are marked with faithful stewardship. We're aware and cognizant that time is of the essence. Our Lord is scheduled to return and we want everyone around us to be ready for that return. And so to that end, at that end, let's keep unpacking for a moment. Look back at chapter 1, verse 22. For you have been born again. This is verse 23. For you have been born again. Now, before we move on, bound up in that phrase is not only a scriptural concept that is crucial for us to understand, but is also central to the gospel that we love. The very fact that all mankind is in need of this new birth, this New life highlights the magnitude and expansiveness of our need before God. Look at back at chapter 1, verse 18. Not only were we redeemed from what kind of life? Peter says it was futile and empty. But the reason that it's empty is because it's lifeless. Ephesians 2 says from the moment that we are born, we are dead in our sins. Sin gives way to lifelessness. And we were redeemed from that empty, futile life. And so what has to happen? What has to happen is that the impartation of life has to happen. And that's an impartation that you and I are incapable of accomplishing ourselves. Last time I checked, dead people are unable to stand, right? Stand firm in a it. Dead people are deaf and blind. Dead people are unable to reach out and grab a hold of anything. Dead people are incapable of seeking. And so what has to happen? Our God, our great God, has to radically and powerfully intervene in our lives. You're very familiar with Ephesians 2, yes? Verse 4, So God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we love this phrase, do we not? Made us alive together with Christ. Friends, that is what you call grace. He made us alive with Christ. That's the same thing we've already seen thus far in this epistle. According to His great mercy, same thing. Different apostle, but same gospel truth. He has caused us to be born again to what kind of hope? A living hope, Peter writes. Friends, this is a theological term that we've covered in Fundamentals of the Faith, so we won't take a lot of time here, but it's known as regeneration, right? The impartation of life to those who are otherwise dead. How does this impartation happen, though? Well, we know why such life is possible. Peter writes here in chapter 1, it's through the living 
and enduring Word of God. Translation of that, new life is the result of God's Word being planted in people. New birth is grounded in and made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, which in that act, God revealed that He had the power to give life to those who were dead. But that power is applied through the preaching of God's Word, isn't it? James chapter 1, verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by what? By the Word of truth. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Church, this is an activity in which the Holy Spirit, right, third person of the Trinity, is intimately involved and which has happened for Peter's readers, resulting in their new birth. They've been born again. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 18, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit... Later on, he tells Nicodemus that unbelievers, we, we naturally love darkness. We, we hate the light and we're not going to come to the light. John 3.18 and 19. What is this conveying to us? Again, we won't spend a lot of time here, but simply reiterate what we covered in Fundamentals of the Faith. This is the richness of our salvation and is often confused. Our salvation is what, the, what the, theology calls monergistic. Right? It is the act of one. It's solely a work of God. Monergistic or monergism is a position in Christian theology where the Holy Spirit works to bring about salvation in individuals through what is known as spiritual regeneration irrespective of their cooperation. That's what mono ergon means. Mono singular. One. Only. Alone, ergon, to work. So what does it mean? Monergism means the work of one. Dead people and one person radically shows up and intervenes in their life, shows up on the scene and gives them spiritual life. We don't cooperate because we have no capacity to cooperate in our lifelessness. Sinners don't cooperate with their new birth any more than infants cooperate in their physical birth. You walk up to a blind person and you take a massive light and shine it in their eyes and they're completely 100% blind. That light does not give them sight, does it? They need new eyes. They need new life. Where is this important for us? Do we have a responsibility to go out and share this living and enduring Word? Do we have a mission to go out and herald this Word to other people that they might be saved? Yes. But we have to remember that, that faith is not a human-initiated work of obedience. Faith is a gift from God that when given by God, always, always, always results in the obedience to the truth. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, you know it, it is a gift of God. Why? Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Our response in salvation is faith. 
But even that is not of ourselves, Paul writes. It is the gift of God. Faith is nothing we do in our own power or resources. We don't have the power. We don't have adequate resources. We are lifeless. And more than that, even if we did have resources, God wouldn't want us to rely on them. Otherwise, we would have grounds for boasting. So Peter here intends to emphasize that even faith is not from us apart from God's giving it. Faith is presented as a gift. You have 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the following letter, the follow-up letter to those in Asia Minor. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Acts 3.16, you have this same apostle Peter preaching a sermon explaining the healing of a lame beggar. And he writes, on the basis of faith in his name, Christ's name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. Church membership, attendance, charitable giving, good deeds, obeying the Ten Commandments, living out the Sermon on the Mount, none of these are able to impart this life. The only thing a person can do that will have any part in salvation is to exercise faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for him. And when a person accepts the finished work of Christ on their behalf, they simply act by the faith supplied by God's grace. God has imparted faith to them and they live out that faith with obedience to the truth. Now, this is the begins to kind of connect to the paradox that we know in theology and we wrestle with and many on this earth recoil at, right? We exercise a faith that comes from God Himself and in between is this paradox known as human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And to reconcile the two is a bit challenging for our limited finite minds, right? We rest in God's word that even the faith that I exercise and am responsible for exercising, even that faith has come from God so that all glory goes to who? All glory goes to God Himself. So we don't bristle and recoil. All credit and boasting belongs to Him. We move our way through chapter 1, verse 23. You have yet still another treasure trove of communication to us. You have this powerful image, and that's planting a seed. You've purified your souls by obeying the truth, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, to the living and enduring Word of God. Now, what is one of the initial things that we know about seeds? Seeds within themselves possess the power to bring forth life. It has inherent life within it, doesn't it? No seed, no flower. A seed is planted, a sapling emerges, because why? All of the necessary life-giving properties were present in the seed from the beginning. And so it is with God's Word. The Bible, like a seed, is alive. It contains within itself everything necessary for life, right there in God's Word. Implication for us is clear. Who are we and what's our responsibility? 
We are simply seed carriers. We are simply those who carry it. We are faithful to proclaim the gospel of truth. We are simply planting the seed. And simply reading or hearing the Word of God in and of itself can't elicit saving faith in those who hear and read. Now, what does the Spirit of God have to do? He has to germinate that seed, the Word of God itself. He has to germinate that seed in the heart of individuals. And that germination infallibly leads and gives rise to faith and union with Christ. That's what God's Word powerfully produces in dead people. It is living and enduring. In just a moment, we're going to talk about how does this impact our evangelistic responsibility? Knowing this and understanding this, you want to talk about galvanizing our conviction to be faithful with gospel proclamation is understanding this principle, this living and enduring word, this seed which is powerful and has everything it needs to bring about spiritual life. You move forward to verse 24 of chapter 1. If you're not impressed enough by God's Word and the nature of God's Word, he goes on to describe this Word. And he describes God's Word as imperishable. And it's supported by quoting Isaiah 40, verses 6-8. through Look at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And may that impress us. The description of God's word here is not only that it's living, but that it's enduring or abiding. See, the work that God's word has done is not something that's just here today and it's gone tomorrow, like the flowers of the field. The implication here, what Peter's holding up and God's holding up, is that it's eternal. It's permanent. It has unchanging consequences in the lives of people. Which is very different than the lives around us that are unbelievers, right? Peter's already described the life of unbelievers in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, their lives are based on ignorance. In chapter 1, verse 18, their lives are full of futility and emptiness. And even here in verse 24, their, their lives are going to wither away, right? All that power, all that glory, all the prestige, everything they've built to accumulate, gone. And by contrast, the Christian is radically different. He's been given new birth. Been given life which is eternal and permanent. And I want to ask you this morning, Remember the main idea of 1 Peter. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of what? In the midst of what? Suffering. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. Take that, and you read of a word of which you've been born again by, and this word is living and enduring. As you suffer, and here in a few short months, Nero's going to begin to raise up Christians, put them on crosses, and set them on fire, and use them as human torches throughout the city. You will watch, and you will grieve. And you read, you've been born again through a word which is living and enduring. What does that do to you? That's for you to answer. What's that? 
Gives you hope. Peter would call it a living hope, right? What else? Strengthens your resolve. This word is living and enduring. It endures forever. Not to be lost. Anything else? What's that? Suffering won't last. It will wither. It will fade. It will not be permanent. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, eternal perspective, right? It takes creatures who are otherwise very myopic, very here and now, very immediate. All I see is suffering. All I see is pain and brokenness in a world that is not as it should be. And it casts my eyes up. This is a living and enduring word which lasts forever. Anything else? What's that? Okay. Yeah, you want to talk about emboldening you to do what the exhortation is really the premise of the entire book is to stand firm. Why am I able to stand firm? Because I've been born again by a word which is living and enduring and will endure forever. It's a living hope. So that's a lot of implications for believers who are suffering. We're going to cover still more in the chapters that come. And all of it's with this message is to encourage that very exhortation for them to stand firm and to be faithful. You have these individuals and, and suffering as marginalized as they were, and they were, and it was going to increase tenfold, a hundredfold. It would be easy for them to be either dismayed or even impressed by all of the glory and power of secular authorities around them. It would be easy to think that their lives were disposable as persecution began to ratchet up and took its toll. And so Peter wants them, God wants them to look at things radically and entirely different. The glory of Emperor Nero is going to fade. The glory of local authorities in Asia Minor are going to fade. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Their life is imperishable through the planting of God's word And through the planting of that God's Word in their lives, they can never be extinguished or put to end. Theirs is a living hope. Now, next week, we're going to move forward and cover the rest of this passage. Really, we covered just the center of the chandelier. We're going to look at some of the other things that hang off of it next week. When you plant a seed, a seed produces a flower, but what sort of flower should we expect to emerge from the seed that has given new life and new birth to believers? That's next week. Point two is new life is to be marked by love. And third, new life is to be marked by growth, right? Through the feeding of God's Word. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. So come back next Sunday. I want to spend some time discussing a few things you have at the bottom of your outline, hopefully not cut off. You have two questions I want us to ponder. And like is always the case, one of the things we want to do in Equip that's different than the main hour is spend time talking together. So I'd encourage you to speak up and think deeply about these things. Number one is we've covered this theological truth and principle and concept that you are born again and new life imparted to dead sinners through the living and enduring Word of God. How does this inform 
and shape our understanding and faithful involvement in evangelism? Question number one. How does this inform and shape our involvement and understanding in faithful evangelism? Alejandro. Yeah, no pressure. God is the one who saves. God is the the miracle worker, the one that accomplishes that. This is reassuring, is it not? Wes. Okay. Yeah, you, you interact with people who are very consumed and worried and filled with anxiety of what's going on around them. Our mission is very clear and singular and focused, right? It, it's a, it's a, it's a singular message. It's the gospel. It's the word of truth. And so we cut through all of that. <laughs> we don't get lost in the weeds. We have one objective. Hey, in the midst of that worry and anxiety and dismay that yes, this world is not what it's be, is not what it ought to be. Let me tell you why. <laughs> right? This world is broken. <laughs> This world is broken after Genesis 3 when sin entered the world and it messed everything up. But there's hope, right? And we extend that to them. What else? What's that? That's what we're called to do. We're just mouthpieces, right? Okay. Yeah, it, it emboldens us not to be afraid of any per- potential persecution that may come, right? And, and for us, it's hard to, we don't know it in, in our present day like they would have. But being ostracized, there, there can be work implications and consequences. There are things that, but they're, tr- they're, they're trivial compared to what they experienced, right? And yet we still fret. <laughs> we have the fear of man that's very pronounced in our lives and it ought not be. You think any other ways that this should inform our understanding and faithfulness and evangelism? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is so good. If we have God's life within us. He's made us His own. We are new creatures in Him. We will love and be brokenhearted for them just as He is, right? Desiring for them to be saved. We will emulate that, which is powerfully uh, convicting for us as we get very focused on just my life little bubble and my routines and my agenda and objective and raising kids, etc. Uh, not interacting with people and seeing them as we ought to with that sort of love of God that I'm broken for they are living without hope. Yes. Joe, I can't... Got All I hear is a whistle. So unless you're whistling, I don't hear you. You're a great whistler, by the way, but... We were once dead ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about that in, in just a second, a little bit more, even in the second question. Yeah, I think that approaches the, the temperament and disposition of which we have when we do approach unbelievers. We can come with a, a smugness, a, a pugnaciousness, right? A, an arrogance. I, 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 but by the grace of God, go I, right? It's that type of mentality. I'm, I remain humble. <laughs> um, they, they need the same grace that I've received, and I didn't merit one ounce of it. 
Let's move on to question two. How does this fuel and alter our worship of God? We're about to go to the main service, sing all creatures of our God and King, rock of ages, cleft from me, let my, let me hide myself in thee. How does this fuel and alter our worship of God? What's that? It invigorates it. Absolutely. Anything else? Natalie? Hmm. Yeah. He he will he will James one, right? Use those trials to do his perfect work in you. Yes, Wes. Yeah. Yeah. Wes said instead of a seat warmer, <laughs> appreciate that. You're you're engaged intellectually, emotionally, right? Every every part of you you are engaged and locked in from uh, joyfully placing yourself in submission to God's Word, right? I'm ready to hear it, receive it, heed it. Uh, but even just in the songs that we sing, with passion and sincerity. Not show, but just genuineness. Anything else? Yes, Abel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we marvel at that grace. We are wicked, desperately Wicked. Yes. Yeah. So if you didn't hear in the far corner, he said, my, the whole of my life should be worship. And, and that's when you talk about new life is imparted by, by God's Word, right? From God implanting His Word in, in you. It, your new life takes form in every context, not just here in the service. To your point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it re it, where things are done and lived selfishly, right? Um, it, it's God oriented. Does this bring Him glory? Is what was said. Think of any others. Yes, Taylor. Okay. Yeah, just the constancy of God in our life as we are. We do want to faithfully steward our lives and share the gospel and live unto Him, right? That He is with us. He will not abandon us. Which is wonderfully true. I think the only other thing I would add, and Joe, you were kind of referencing, is we're humbled, right? Um, we're humbled. It's a sweet thing to think about just for us as a church, North Lake Bible Church, you think about guests that walk in, new attenders, they, they just moved to the area. Uh, they move from all over the country, right? And they're moving, moving to this area and they come. And what are some of the things that they observe about the people of God in this place? And we would hope that it would be several things, but one is just a, a humble, broken, grateful, loving people, right? And you could add a whole lot of adjectives to that, but if, if that's said of us because God is just doing His work in us as a church and in His people, uh, what a powerful testimony that God is real and powerful and in these people, I can see it all over this community and their lives together. Uh, I want to know this God, right? I want to be here. There's no other place I want to be. Uh, and right, Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glorious grace, may it all... May I all go to Him. All right. Well, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to prepare us for the next hour and we'll pray for our pastor as well. Lord, we thank You for the morning. Thank You for Your Word. 
We thank you that it is indeed living and enduring. And as we now, over the next few minutes, prepare ourselves to go sit under the preaching of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, we are moved and grateful that you would be mindful of, even as Abel said, we are wicked, sinful, lifeless people. Our lives are marked with futility and emptiness, and yet you are the God who saves. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you as you deserve, both in song and in the listening and applying of your word. Help us even as we fellowship, uh, as we even talk next week, of what it is to love the brethren with a sincere love from the heart. Lord, may that already be in great measure here in this church, but Lord, would you increase it tenfold. May we excel still more. Why? Because we have been given new life. Uh, may we be marked by that love. And Lord, help us to love others, guests who come and reach out to them and, and include them in and, and let them know that this is a place where We have a high view of your word and a high view of your son, uh, Lord. We're grateful for our time. We're grateful that you chose in your providence and wisdom to set aside a a day every week where we would just come together. Lord, we need it. The reminders, the, the sweetness, the encouragement. We thank you for your wisdom to see fit that we would always assemble together. Help, thank, thank you and help us as we seek to be faithful this morning. Be with our pastor as he preaches. Fill him with power and conviction. As Spurgeon says, give him spirit unction, Lord. Uh, fuel him to just be faithful and proclaim and help us to receive and learn and apply. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.